Uh, we'll talk about biblical genres after that, um, and then we'll talk about potential biblical contradictions, that topic in general. We'll talk about other Gospels, uh, alleged other, other Gospels, and the resurrection, um, and then what this lesson is not is we're not going to look at case-by-case case things in the Bible where someone says, well, the Bible says A here and B here, so how is this true? We're not, there's a lot of those. We're not going to go through all of those. So the first thing I want to talk about is something that's probably could be kind of strange to a lot of us. This was strange to me when I heard it. But before we look at the evidence, what we have to think about is our foundation for our belief, the reason why we believe in what the Bible says. And it's actually not physical evidence. It's the reason why we believe in the Bible is not because you can look at some historical events or look at the manuscripts and say, this proves the Bible's right. And the reason for that is because the Bible tells us in Romans that without God, we're dead in trespasses and sins, that the wages of sin are death. We're in this state of deadness. And the Bible tells us the way that we come to life is through the Holy Spirit. So it's not that we look at some evidence and then we take that evidence and we read the Bible and then we become alive. It's that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and after he opens our eyes, we read the Bible and we realize, oh, this is God's word and then we come to faith. And then it's after that point that we can start looking at evidences. So the evidence, some of us, I grew up thinking you first look at the evidence and then you come to faith, but the Bible actually kind of flips those around. The Bible says first you look, first you become a Christian and have faith, and then because of that faith, you start looking into the evidence. Sometimes in our lives, it, we look at evidence first and then become Christians, but what the Bible says is the only way you became a Christian is because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes. So... This quote here is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, this, is some, this was written uh, 400-ish years ago, and this, has been a, this is the point that they make, and this has been something that Christians have believed for a long time. It says, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, that's the Bible, and divine, divine authority thereof, the divine authority in the Bible, that persuasion is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So before this, it says, you can look at all this evidence, but the real reason we believe is because of the Holy Spirit's testimony. And then we see this in John 16, 13. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And there's some other verses there on your handout that basically say, some, something similar. The Spirit is the one that's opening our eyes. So that's kind of like we want to get that set. Our real foundation is not on some evidence. And that's important because if we have some evidence and then someone comes along and allegedly does away with that evidence, our faith doesn't go away with it because our faith isn't built on the evidence. Our faith is built on the Holy Spirit. So we just want to have that as our foundation as we move forward. So the first thing, though, in, in terms of our lesson that we want to look at is genre. A lot of people say you can't read the Bible literally because some things aren't obviously aren't literal. And so you have to, so they'll say since some things aren't literal, the whole Bible's not literal, which means Jesus never raised from the dead. So the first thing we have to look at when, when someone's making that claim is you have to look at genre. The Bible's written in a lot of different genres. And so an example of this is the common phrase, my heart is broken, that we use. Versus, the, so if someone said, my heart is broken, that would mean one thing. If someone said, my heart is malfunctioning, it would probably mean something different. So the, the 
core of that, though, is that broken and malfunctioning, those two words pretty, are, are pretty similar. If you say this is broken, this is malfunctioning, it's pretty much the same word. But when you put it in a different context, it means something totally different. So if I say this recorder's broken, and I say this recorder's malfunctioning, I'm basically saying the same thing twice. If I say my heart is broken, and my heart is malfunctioning, I'm saying two completely different things. Because we all understand that these are different genres of, of speech. So what are the genres in the Bible? The first genre is legal. Um, this is kind of, we're all pretty familiar with this. A lot of the Pentateuch, Leviticus, the laws that God gives, um, that's, that's a legal genre. And so when you're reading legal genre, you have to understand that you're in legal genre if you're going to properly understand it. Just like if I said, my heart is broken, I'm in kind of like a romantic, non-literal genre. You have to understand that to know what I'm actually saying. So there, on your handout there, we won't go too in-depth into this, but there's even under legal, there's a couple different genres. The next is narrative. We're all, this is probably what we're most familiar with. There's a, um, a lot of narrative in the Bible, and then you can see on your handout there, there's six different subgroups of narrative. And if you really, really want to best grasp what's going on in whatever section of Scripture you're reading, if you're reading the narrative of David and Goliath, it helps to know, okay, I'm under four here. I'm in a heroic-type narrative. So the point of this narrative is to show me this hero, and I'm supposed to look to him and, and see all of his good qualities and how they point to God and stuff like that. So narr narrative has a lot of subsections as well. The next type of genre would be poetry. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, much in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There's a lot of poetry in those books. Uh, and then wisdom literature, um, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Um, and what's interesting there is you'll note C and D both have um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So some of Ecclesiastes is poetry, and then some of it's kind of wisdom literature. So these genres, it's not like you can just take a book and say, you know, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is all poetry. There's no wisdom in it. It's like, well, no. The whole point is that whoever wrote it, we think Solomon, is saying, here's all the wisdom I've learned, and he's giving us wisdom, but he's doing it in poetry. So there's, there's, there's kind of interlocking genres going on uh, in that book. So a lot of these genres will interlock. One book can have multiple genres. And then we also have um, Gospels. Gospels are actually, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is actually its own type of genre. Um, so th what's going on in Gospels, and this is important, we'll come to this a little bit later, Gospels is not just a pure biography. It's not like, so Luke, when he wrote his biography, or his, his Gospel, he wasn't just sitting down and saying, I'm going to record every single detail as perfectly about Jesus' life as I can, kind of how we would think of a biography. What Luke is doing is he is recording events, but he's also giving us doctrine. So it's, it's, it's a recording of the events, but it's also presenting Jesus as Christ. And he's recording the events in a way so that we can see that Jesus is Christ, in a way that a modern biography wouldn't really work. And we know that because Luke and, um, and John tell us, I wrote this down so you'd believe in Christ. I'm presenting you the truths of Christ through this narrative. So it's actually its own type of literature. And when people try to say, oh, there's contradictions in the Gospels, you have to recognize, well, he's presenting narrative, he's presenting 
um, events, biography, but he's doing it through doctrine. So you have to understand that. Um, and when you understand that, the contradictions, most of them just kind of fall away. And then the last um, genre is logical discourse, epistles, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, basically everything Paul wrote and Peter. Um, these are um, just letters written to people, and they're trying to use logic and saying, because, because A plus B equals C, you need to believe in C type of thing. They're using logic and exhorting people to do things. And that's obviously a very different type of genre than poetry. Paul's not writing poetry. He's being very logical, A, B, C, D. And then poetry is just flowing, and it's beautiful. So we have these very distinct types of genres in the Bible. But um, it's good to know these. It's helpful. But we all instinctively kind of know this. If you, did, you, you might not have been familiar with these specific names, but if I handed you Proverbs, you'd say, oh, he's trying to give me wisdom, and it's kind of poetic. You just kind of, you might not use those words, but if I handed you Proverbs, and then I handed you something in 1 Corinthians, you'd instinctively know, we all instinctively know, these are different types of genres. And so it's just helpful to have names to attach to those genres when we're looking at um, how we can trust the Bible. So it's, it's good to be aware of these um, types of genres. Um, so this helps us in our next section looking at, oh, I'm sorry, before I do that, I have one thing that's not on the handout, um, the flood. So this is probably the flood and then the creation account are probably the two biggest debated parts of the Bible in Genesis because people struggle to figure out what genre it is. Is the flood and the creation count like pure narrative? Is it just recording of events? Or is it more of a poetic type of presentation that's not supposed to be literal? I don't want to try to answer that question this morning, but what's really interesting, one thing I found that's really interesting is the way that the flood is structured. I don't know if you can see this, but this is basically what's called, a, it's a chiasm, and it's a giant chiasm. This is the way that Hebrew poetry, but sometimes also narrative is written, where they structure everything around a central theme. So X in the middle there is that God remembers Noah. And then you have, uh, I can't see it on my screen. You have Noah and his sons up here on A. Oh, you can't see it either. <laughs> so just take my word for it. So you have B up here, all life on earth. And then you have B prime down here, all life on earth. This is chapter 6. This is chapter 9. Curse on the earth, chapter 6. Blessing on the earth, chapter 9. And so each one corresponds with the other until you get to the middle. God remembers Noah. This is how the flood narrative is structured. And so some people look at that and say, oh, well, the flood narrative then isn't trying to give us literal, literally what happened. It's trying to illustrate that God is faithful and God brings blessings and curse. So this is just supposed to be an illustration of the fact that um, genre is really important when we're trying to say, is this a literal event? Well, what genre is it in? Okay, so this, this helps us in contradictions. So um, some of the things we see in the Bible appear to be contradictions. And an example of this would be in the Tale of Two Cities. A lot of us are familiar with this line. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's, I mean, literally a contradiction. You're saying this, this time is the best, this time is the worst. And so if you're being kind of pedantic or if you're, if you're being nitpicky, you'd say, well, you're contradicting yourself. Well, um, who wrote the Tale of Two Cities? Charles, Charles Dickens. If you were going to ask Charles Dickens, he would, he would, 
probably bristle at you saying he's contradicting himself. You say, I'm trying to express this truth that some really good things were happening and some really bad things were happening. You're, you're not really reading what I'm saying. And so we, well, some people will do this with the Bible. They'll look at two things and say, oh, these are contradictory. And we're really doing the same thing as, as um, someone who would critique Charles Dickens here. So an example of that, Jesus is called in John 1, the Lamb of God. And then in John 10, Jesus is called the Good Shepherd. So you can't be the lamb and the shepherd at the same time. Like the shepherd leads, leads the lambs and the lambs are led. You can't be both at the same time. But John in his gospel calls Jesus both. And that's because he's trying to illustrate two different things. He's trying to show that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's going to pay for our sins. That's what he means by lamb. And then Jesus is our shepherd. He's going to lead us into righteousness. And so these are two different things being said that are both true. Jesus pays for our sins, and Jesus leads us like a shepherd. And so John is using imagery to express those two things. And they might appear contradictory, but that's because we're, we're not understanding that John is using a certain type of genre. He's being um, kind of poetic, and he's uh, presenting to us doctrine, doctrine about God, doctrine about Christ. So those are kind of on-the-surface contradictions that we see. Um, we need to pay attention to genre to understand a lot of these contradictions aren't actually contradictions. But then there's also time contradictions. So in Luke and Acts, what happens basically is, is Luke says that Jesus appears to the disciples, and it seems like he says Jesus appears to the disciples and then he ascends in Luke. That's what it seems like. And then in Acts... We, he says, Jesus appears to the disciples, and then he stays with them 40 days, and then ascends. So we can see that here. You have Luke 24, 36. He says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be to you. And then about 14 verses later, they have a conversation. And then in verse 50, he says, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them uh, and ascended into heaven. Uh, it's on the screen and not on your handout. That's verse 51. So, we, so it, it sounds like he's saying, Jesus appears, has a conversation, and then ascends. It just says, and then he ascended. And then in Acts we see, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so some people might point to this and say, well, it looks like he's saying Jesus was there for maybe a day, and then later on he's saying Jesus appeared for 40 days. But again, we're, we're kind of doing what, somewhat, it's similar to saying Charles Dickens is contradicting himself. Because Luke clearly isn't saying in, in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was just there for one day. He's just recording events, and he's not telling us how long of a time span um, occurred between Jesus appearing and ascending. He doesn't tell us. He just says Jesus appeared, and then at some point later, he ascended. He's choosing not to tell us the time. And we can see that this happens all the time in movies. You know, a common theme that you see in movies is you see somebody at a party one night, and then they go home, and then they wake up, and, you know, they're, they're somewhere else, or, you know, their car is missing, or they're all beat up or something. And so all we saw in the movie was they're at the party, and then they wake up, and let's say, for example, they're all beat up and bloody. And, we, and so we were wondering, what happened in between going home and getting beat up? Well, the, the person, whoever made the movie, just chose to present it in that way. It's just, he went home, he woke up bloody. We know that something happened in between, but the movie just didn't tell us about it. And then maybe later on in the movie, you find out all these events that happened through the night. 
So this is a common theme we see in movies, and it's really similar to what Luke's doing. He's just saying, this thing happened, and then the next thing happened. And then he goes into Acts, and he starts to fill in the details of what's going on in between. So the, the basic theme here is that you, we don't want to be too nitpicky when we're saying, okay, this thing happened, then this thing happened, any more than we'd be in a movie. Luke is not recording for us strict biography and only details. He's giving us um, the details, but he's also presenting doctrine, kind of like a movie would. A movie would, it, it has a, a theme or a point, but a movie's not just some guy standing up here like me just rattling off points. A movie presents the theme in a, in a way that has a story and a structure, and that's what's happening um, in the Gospels. So another thing, another type of contradiction that people will bring up is loca- uh, potential um, location contradictions. Um, so this again, we have another example from Luke. So in um, Luke 24:50, Luke says that Jesus um, ascended at Bethany, and then in Acts he says uh, Jesus ascends near the Mount of Olives. And so this is another thing people have pointed out, and they say, well, look, he couldn't have ascended at Bethany if he really ascended at the Mount of Olives. These are different places. But again, it's, it's, it's the person being too literal. And, I, and then what the, the general theme and critics who are pointing these things out is they're applying standards to the Bible that we would never apply to ourselves in ordinary speech or to something like a movie. We would never apply this strict of a standard. So we can see, uh, you know, you might not be able to see the map. My internet is not working. So base, the, the map isn't popping up, but Bethany and um, the Mount of Olives, it's, it's basically like Philly and Abington. Like they're, they're close, and the Mount of Olives is not a city. It's a mount, and Bethany is the city. And so Mount of Olives is like a little place, and Bethany is the big city. So it's like if... If you were on the phone with someone from California, you'd probably say, I'm at church in Philly. You probably wouldn't say Abington because they've never heard of Abington. You definitely wouldn't say Roslyn. I mean, no, who's heard of that? So it's, it's, it's similar. But if, if we were talking to one another and, I, and we, I said, hey, we're in Philly right now, you, you, you probably still would under, you know what I'm saying. But it would be more precise for me to say Abington. So if I'm talking to my mom and I say I'm, I'm in Philly right now, I'm not lying to her. It's just that she's in California. And, well, she knows Abington because she knows me. But if she, if she had never met me, she had no idea where Abington is. So this is a standard. This is something that we still do today. We use kind of general locations to talk about the bigger location. We say we're in the greater Philly area even though we're not in the city limits of Philly. That's really all Luke's doing, and, and uh, you see a lot of that in the Gospels um, and the Bible in general. Is re- they're, being, they're using generalities to get the point across, and critics apply this standard that we would never apply to ourselves. Um, man, I'm really bummed this pictures, these pictures aren't popping up. Um, so there's a, there's a great book. I have the old edition here. Um, that basically chronicle this. The old edition is called "When Critics Ask." Um, I had a, I have a picture of the new one. It's called "The Big Book of Bible Difficulties." The name's in there, um, in your handout. It's by a guy named Norm Geisler. And what he does is he takes in the new edition. There's 800 potential difficulties, potential contradictions in the Bible, and he um, 
arranges them by book of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and then he'll just explain it. So some of them we don't have answers for. We say, oh, well, we're, we think this might be what's going on, but we're just really not sure. We don't have enough information. But almost, I think probably every main issue in the Bible they look at in this book, and they'll give some, sometimes they pr- completely solve the problem, and other times they give us more information. So um, if you're interested and there's, you have specific questions about specific issues you've seen in the Bible, um, or if you're just looking for a great reference for when people bring this kind of stuff up, I really recommend that book. I don't sit there and read through the whole thing. It's just if something pops up, I can go look it up in the book. Okay, so um, our next section here is, is talking about other Gospels. Um, this, this is included in the book that we've been kind of going through. Um, and the reason for that is because um, people will point to these um, kind of like pseudo-gospels. The most famous one's probably the Gospel of Thomas. And they'll point to these and say, well, this gospel proves that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't literally the case because some guy named Thomas wrote another gospel it's about Jesus, and it says things that are different than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the, the claim is often that we're taking, we're taking these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just ignoring all these other ones. Um, and so the people will try to use that as, as, a, as a critique to say you can't take the whole Bible literally because it's just this random kind of smattering of um, different books. You're kind of picking and choosing. Um, so that's that's the claim that people make. But what's interesting is that um, you've got a quote here. This this quote is from Bart Ehrman, who is an atheist. He's a biblical scholar, but an atheist, which might sound kind of like a contradiction. But there's a, there's actually surprisingly a lot of non-Christians who spend their lives studying the Bible. The Bible is the most studied book out of any in the world, and there's a large... Um, large proportion of people who don't believe in the literal death and resurrection of Christ who spend their lives studying the Greek and Hebrew of the Bible, um, mainly because they can make money writing books. But So this guy, though, Bart Ehrman, he's an atheist, and this is what he says. Our Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus. This is the view of all serious historians of antiquity and of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. So when people try to point to things like the Gospel of Thomas, um, the the thing that they're not um, accounting for is the fact that even people who don't believe what's written in the Gospels, they recognize that these Gospels are much more historical, much more reliable for telling us about who Jesus is, than the Gospel of Thomas. The main reason for that is that the Gospel of Thomas was written much, much later. The latest book of our four Gospels is probably John, and it was probably written between 60 and 90 A.D. So if Jesus died in 30, 35 A.D., you have 30 to 60 years after Jesus' life. And that's the latest Gospel. Mark was probably written as early as the 40s, and you're talking less than 10 years after Jesus. So these Gospels are written much closer to the time of Christ, and these other Gospels that people point to are almost always much, much later. Um, the other thing about the other Gospels is that they're, um, they, they're presented in a way that doesn't accord with the rest of Scripture. So the Gospel of Thomas has things like um, where Jesus 
is cursing. He, Jesus as a boy is cursing other little boys on the playground, basically. Just these kind of crazy things, kind of trying to portray Jesus as just this average boy who has these magical powers. And it just clearly doesn't line up with our Gospels and what the Old Testament says the Messiah will be like. This Messiah is going to be this, the, the perfect human who never sins, who's wise in all things. And then God, these other Gospels present Jesus in these ways that just don't, don't accord with the rest of Scripture. So um, when people try to point to other Gospels, the key, the key there is to show them these were written much, much later, and they don't accord with the rest of Scripture. Um, so uh, the general way, though, that we look at and recognize all the books of the Bible as biblical has been um, really helpfully laid down. I had a picture of it in here, but it's not working. Um, is, is a book written... Oh, this one's showing now. Okay, so this book here, Michael Kruger, Canon Revisited. Um, it's, it's kind of a technical, a little, little bit of a difficult book. But what he does in the book is he tries to show, here's how the church dis- determines these 66 books. Um, there were more than 66 books written. Like the, Cac- the Catholic Church has the Apocrypha, which I think is like 14 extra books. Some of us might have heard of Maccabees, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, um, um, Judith. Judith. Yeah, so there's these other books that, um, that have been out there, but the the Christian church has recognized only these 66. And so people say, well, why are you picking those versus the others? Um, what Kruger tries to do in this book is to lay down, this is the way that the church does it. And so he, he gives basically three main criteria for each book to, that the church used to determine whether it's actually written by God or just one of these um, um, pseudepigraphal, pseudo-books um, of the Bible. And um, the other thing that's important to recognize is that these books that were written, um, like 1st, 2nd Maccabees, a lot of them are written um, just presenting normal history. The person who wrote the book didn't think that he was writing scripture. He was just trying to record historical events that happened in the time of the church. Then other books, like the Gospel of Thomas, they're written just to try to kind of get get, um, attention put on themselves, kind of like... Um, atheistic scholars of the Bible. They're just trying to say something about Jesus that other people are going to try to read. So there's these, you can detect kind of motivations in these other books that clearly aren't, this is God's word. So um, Kruger lays down these three criteria, the first of which is that it has to be received by the church. So if God is going to give us a book and he's going to lead the church, then it makes sense that when he gives us that book, he's going to set the church up in a way to receive the book. So if we, we dug up some, you know, fifth gospel and it, and it was saying all these new things about Jesus, it wouldn't, we wouldn't include it in the Bible because we'd say, well, God would have given, us, given that to us early on. He set up the church. He gave us the Bible. And so one of the criteria we have to look at is, did the church from right at the time, right after Jesus, were they using that book? So that's the first criteria. The next criteria is that it, um, it had to come from an authoritative source. So the, the Gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those were all people who physically saw Jesus. Luke, Luke might not have, but he was talking to people who did physically see Jesus. So it has to come from a source of a person that not only saw the events, but also had some sort of spiritual authority. So like 
Paul's letters we accept because he was named an apostle of the church. Christ gave him that authority to write down the things about Christ. So all the books, Genesis through Revelation, come from someone who had firsthand knowledge of what was going on, and it came from a person who God gave authority. God is saying, giving you authority to record these things. And so when we're looking at books that people might bring to us, Gospel of Thomas would not fit the bill because uh, it was written so much later. And what's interesting about that gospel specifically is that it's named the Gospel of Thomas because it's, they're trying to attribute it to Thomas the disciple. And they know that they, they need to make it look like Thomas wrote it because that's the only way the church is going to read it and think it's, and think it's scripture. But we know Thomas died before probably 100 A.D. And the Gospel of Thomas was written, written probably 150 to 200. It was written way after he was dead. So uh, some of these non-canonical books will try to make it look like they're written by an authoritative source, um, but they're not. But that also shows us that's how important, even to the early church, the authoritative source was. So that's the second criteria. And then the third criteria is it has to comport with the rest of the Bible. So even if someone who apparently was a disciple and the church apparently received it for a little while, um, if it doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible, then obviously we know it's not from God because God doesn't contradict himself. So the early church, right after Jesus, as they were trying to figure out which letters of Paul were original or not, some people would claim to be Paul and write letters. That was the criteria they'd use. they say, well, it looks like Paul wrote this. All, a lot of the church knows about it. We might not have received it and said this is from God, but we know about it. And so they look at it and say, well, is what Paul's saying in the, the third letter to the Corinthians, for example, if what Paul's saying in this third letter is contradicting First and Second Corinthians or the Gospels or something in the Old Testament, then we know it can't be from God. So that, that's the third criteria. And what the church has done since Jesus rose and went into heaven for the New Testament, what the church has done is taken those three criteria and use them all at the same time. So if someone brings us a book and says, well, why didn't the church accept this book? Well, we say, well, it's probably not agreeing with the rest of the Bible. It's probably not actually from someone who's authoritative. And the church as a whole hasn't already received it. Therefore, it can't be an authentic um, book of the Bible. Um, okay, so that's kind of that moves us in here to our last point which is the resurrection. And this is, kind of, this is kind of the most important point in, in, in determining why we can trust in the Bible. Aside from the fact, like we opened with, the Holy Spirit's opening our eyes, and, I, and we just believe it. The, the reason I believe the Bible is because the Holy Spirit regenerated my soul, and then when I read the words, I, I, see, I see and hear from God. It doesn't mean that I never have my doubts or questions, but it does mean that it's the spirit has given me enough faith to say I'm going to follow this book. I might have my bad days when I'm not following it, but generally my life is is trying to follow this book. And the only way I could be there is from the Holy Spirit. So that's that's the main reason we believe this. But I think, and mo- a lot of people think, the biggest kind of evidence-based reason why we believe in the Bible is the resurrection. Um, the fact that the Gospels record the resurrection. And there's no evidence that Christ did not resurrect. 
um, is is evidence that he actually did. So um, a lot of uh, it's been um, shown before. This is something that a lot of apologists like to talk about. We might have already talked about it in here. Um, the evidence, the the manuscript evidence for our four gospels. There's they keep finding more of them, but there's well over five thousand manuscripts of um, the New Testament. So it's not like uh, Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew and there's one copy sitting somewhere. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies of Matthew because people, as soon as he wrote it, they were recording it. And so we can take these hundreds and hundreds of copies and we can compare them all to one another and we can see, well, they're all saying the same thing. It's not like Matthew wrote down something and then it slowly changed as time went on. They're all saying the same thing. So the next most attested piece of ancient literature is Homer's Iliad. Um, that's just an old Greek kind of epic poem. And that has, I think, like seven or 800 manuscripts. And so you'll never hear a critic out there say, oh, we can't trust Homer's Iliad because it's, it says some kind of fantastic things and um, there's not that much manuscript um, attestation saying we have all these manuscripts pointed to Homer. He only has 800 and everyone agrees this is exactly what Homer wrote. Whereas we have f over 5,000 for the Gospels and people doubt it. The reason people doubt it is not because of evidence. It's because of what the Gospels say. The Gospels say that Jesus raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And because they don't believe in supernatural things they're going to reject that right off the, right off the beginning. So it's, it doesn't have to do with uh, manuscripts or evidence. The reason people don't believe the Bible is because they don't believe in supernatural things. And then they try to back up their disbelief by pointing out things like contradictions that we just talked about, um, uh, potential contradictions and things like that. But what's interesting is the, the resurrection actually has more positive evidence for it than a lot of things that we teach our kids in history class about people like Alexander the Great who was kind of in that same time period. So um, some of the evidence for the resurrection. Um, the first thing is that the Gospels record that there was two female witnesses that went to the tomb. They were the first ones to see that Jesus rose from the dead. They went to the tomb and Jesus wasn't there. Um, the reason that's significant is because in, um, in ancient Jewish time in the Jewish and Roman culture women could not be uh, witnesses in court. It's kind of like now, like we wouldn't allow like a three-year-old to be a witness to a crime in court because we don't trust a three-year-old, which is probably a good thing. But back then it was a bad thing. They did not trust women to give their testimony in court. But what's interesting is if someone was making up uh, an account of the resurrection, it would be like me saying, you know, if I'm making up something like, like if I was going to say I, I, I bench-pressed 1,000 pounds in the gym, and I'm just obviously lying, I would never say, yeah, talk to this three-year-old. He saw me do it. Right? I'd, I'd want to point to someone more credible and say, ask him. He knows I did it. So the fact that the Gospels record that women were the first um, witnesses is evidence that they were actually telling the truth. They weren't making things up, because if they were making it up, they would, they would make up someone much more respectable in that culture to, to claim as a witness. Um, the other thing is that the um, Romans were uh, professional um, um, killers. Like that, the, the people who crucified Christ, that was their job. They killed criminals, and they did a lot of it, and that, they were really, really good at it. 
some people will try to say, well, they didn't actually kill Jesus. He, he was just kind of, he looked like he was dead, and then he got resuscitated. And, you know, he just kind of, he never actually died. And then he gained his strength, and then that's how he walked out of the tomb. Um, and what's interesting about that is you have really smart people who don't believe in Jesus. The, 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 um, Jesus as Lord, who ascended into heaven. They don't believe in him, but they're coming up with theories saying, well, Jesus didn't really die. Why are they, trying to, why are they coming up with the theory that Jesus didn't really die? The reason they're, they come up with that theory is because they realize there's so much evidence for the fact that after his crucifixion, people saw him. There's hundreds and hundreds of people that saw Jesus. So they're like, how do I make sense of this? Well, he didn't really die. But that's, that theory doesn't make any sense because, like we said, the Romans are professional killers. That was their job. Second of all, it's recorded that Jesus obviously was savagely, brutally beaten. We heard Josh preaching on that the past couple of weeks. Jesus' um, uh, the torture and the crucifixion was brutal. So if Jesus was just kind of limping along, like on his last breath, kind of got resuscitated a little bit, he probably wouldn't have this big following. People wouldn't want to follow this guy who looks like he's about to die. Um, so th- that theory just really doesn't hold any weight. And then the other thing is that they're not the Romans weren't actually weren't just excellent killers; they were really good guards. And so I think it's in Luke; it's recorded that um, Pilate sends guards to go guard the tomb because they don't want anybody messing with Jesus' body. The Jews the Jews tell him put some guards there. Part of the 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 job description of being a Roman guard was. If you fail in your job, if you're guarding prisoners or a tomb, if someone gets through to you to what you're guarding, the the consequence is death. You have you have to be killed now. So if I'm guarding a prisoner and someone gets by me and gets the, to the prisoner, I have to be put to death. That was just the way Roman um, Roman law worked for for guards. And so um, the idea that Jesus somehow got past, he's all beat up and he somehow got past these guards who first of all failed to kill him, and then second of all failed to, to, to protect him, um, just doesn't really make any sense historically. And then you also have the fact that if Jesus' body was still in the tomb, the Jews would love to grab that and say, look, here's his dead body. He's not resurrected. Your Lord is not a real Lord. But obviously they couldn't do that. So when you look at the historical evidence of what's going on around Jesus, it just seems it's just impossible to come up with any theory that would make sense of it other than he, he physically rose from the dead and ascended. And that's why you have so many different theories about what happens because no one's able to figure it out except for Christians. Um, and then another interesting thing is that there was, a, according to, we don't have this in the Bible, but the early churches recorded that 11 out of the 12 disciples um, died um, because of their faith in Jesus. Uh, John is the only one that um, tradition says didn't wasn't died for wasn't killed for his faith. Eleven out of twelve, the Romans were persecuting Christians because of um, Nero, and they're trying to kill all the Christians. And eleven out of the twelve people who spent years and years walking with Jesus every single day, eleven out of twelve of them said, "I'm not going to give up my faith in Jesus. You can kill me." but I'm, I'm going to maintain my faith in Jesus. So what that tells us, that's a historical fact we can point to, and what it tells us is the people who walked with Jesus and knew him, they maintained their faith in Jesus. Now, 
if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, if he was all bloody and beat up, or if the disciples went and grabbed his body and hid it and made up the lie, why would they die for something that they knew was a lie? The only way to make sense of the fact that the 11 out of the 12 disciples all went to their deaths believing in Jesus, the only way to make sense of that is that they knew Jesus was Lord. That's, if you knew it was a lie, you wouldn't do it. Of course, some people like radical Islam, they're willing to die for their beliefs, right? But the difference between like a terrorist and the disciples was the terrorists aren't in a position to know whether Islam is true. They, they, they've never met Muhammad or Allah. They just think it is. The difference is the disciples, they knew Jesus. They were right there. They saw him and they talked to him. If there was 11 people or 12 people in the history of the world that would know whether Christianity is real or not, it's the 12 people who are willing to die for their faith. So um, that's, that's um, just kind of a quick run through on why we can take the Bible literally. First of all, we need to look at the genre that the text is in. Um, second of all, we need to um, recognize that um, the resurrection points to the validity of the scripture because Christ actually died and rose again, and Christ said all the scriptures are true, and they speak to me. And then third of all, most importantly, we, we have to recognize that the real reason we believe is not because of evidence, but it's because of the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All right, so let's close in a quick word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for revealing to us your word. And Lord, you just you always give us more grace than we need. You give us grace upon grace. And so you gave us the grace of the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes and revealed to us the truth of Scripture. But then you give us more grace and you give us these awesome historical evidences of the reality and the truth of the faith that you've given us, Lord. So we pray that you would sharpen our minds, help us to understand these things. We won't understand them all, but help us understand it enough so that we can be good witnesses to the, the uh, resurrected and ascended Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.